You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about anxiety. Joining me is Dr. Billy Schwartz, an attending psychologist in the Integrated Primary Care Program here at CHOP. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So anxiety is always on the top of the list of things that primary care doctors want to hear more about. So thanks so much for trying to tackle this in our podcast today. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about are what are some of the ways that anxiety might manifest in our patients in primary care? So anxiety tends to be one of the leading diagnoses that happen to happen in childhood over uh, the course of lifespan in general, but definitely in childhood Mm -hmm. um, for behavioral health concerns. And it's easy to sort of overlook many aspects of anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, but there's a few key things that you can pick up in primary care that might help just navigate the landscape of childhood a little bit easier. Great. So some of the things that we sometimes hear about are things like school problems or sleep issues, headaches, belly pain, are those all things that we should think about anxiety and when should we think about early or after we've ruled out the medical causes? So anxiety is one of those things that everybody feels anxious and there's actually a biological reason why we feel that way. So if you think way back in time when we used to be foraging for our food and fighting off animals to survive, Um, anxiety was around to make us feel like we're in danger and to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. But now living in modern day society, we don't have as many of those perceived dangers, but yet our bodies still tend to overreact. And so you definitely want to rule out the medical if kids are coming to you with somatic symptoms like headaches and belly pain, um, over sweating, things like that, because Mm -hmm. that would be helpful to rule out any organic cause. Mm -hmm. But if the picture isn't clear that that's leading to something medical, then anxiety is definitely a contributor to look at. Mm -hmm. Great. And some of our patients with anxiety have parents with anxiety. So how much is nature versus nurture? Uh, Another excellent question. Like we said, everybody feels anxiety from time to time. Mm -hmm. When I talk to families about anxiety presentation, I liken it more to waves in an ocean. Mm -hmm. And there's never a day where there aren't any waves. There might be times where it's really choppy and there might be times when it's calm. Mm -hmm. But we all have the predisposition to be anxious one time or another. Um, When it comes to parental anxiety, yeah, there's definitely a link between parents that can be more anxious and then seeing it in their kids. Um, and it will change over the course of early childhood, middle childhood, um, teenage years, and beyond how anxiety presents itself. Mm-hmm. Can you inherit anxiety, or is there sort of like a two-hit where you're predisposed and then um, there are certain factors in your life that bring it out? It, it's a little bit of both. Um, so research is showing that there is some sort of baseline level of anxiety that is inheritable mm-hmm. and that then stressful situations, the way we learn to interact with situations can exacerbate our underlying symptoms mm-hmm. or not. Also, the way in which parents treat kids that are anxious when they're young, so sort of shaping that behavior. Mm-hmm. If you have a kid that has a lot of trouble separating from you in the morning when you go to daycare or school, then you know the way in which you help shape that behavior and either learn to deal with the symptoms or play into it if it's really stressful mm-hmm. can also affect how anxiety symptoms manifest. Mm-hmm. 
And then I guess the positive on the flip side is that if you are predisposed to anxiety, some parents may have good strategies to have mm -hmm. protective um, factors in that child's life so that maybe their anxiety isn't as bad as maybe the parents was. Absolutely. And so I, I think one of the key things about picking up anxiety in primary care um, early on before they even make it to a psychology office or any sort of behavioral health provider is that anxiety changes over time. Symptoms um, often present themselves and sometimes a parent says, oh, this looks familiar. I remember dealing with these same sort of things when I was younger and can teach help, helpful coping skills. Sometimes also maybe not so helpful coping mm -hmm. skills because we, without treatment, we learn how to do things that decrease that anxiety that tend to be things like avoidance or um, maybe not always the most helpful strategies, but things that have worked. Mm -hmm. And so part of the goal of recognizing it early is teaching kids and families, because parents learn from this too, how to deal with those symptoms in a helpful manner to calm the body down, sort of retrain our brains how to react when we're feeling stressed, and then see the perceived danger, the perceived threat versus what it actually might be. Mm -hmm. Great. Let's talk demographics. So who is most commonly affected by anxiety? Um, girls tend to have more anxiety disorders than boys, mm -hmm. and it also changes across the lifespan. So um, in terms of other demographics, it kind of cuts across lots of different racial and ethnic demographic populations. Mm -hmm. um, the rates of comorbidity, comorbidity or having one other diagnosis or two other diagnoses on top of it can be higher in certain populations. So for example, in urban school, urban public school children, you might see a higher rate of disruptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, for kids that might have social anxiety, they might have separation anxiety, and dealing with those symptoms in a classroom setting might be really challenging. Mm -hmm. They might learn that it's much easier to flip a desk or to run out of a room rather than present a book report or something like that. And so they might look like they have disruptive behavior problems, but really underlying is a anxiety disorder that hasn't been treated. Mm -hmm. That's a good point that it may not. It may not present how you think and they may cover it in with other behaviors mm -hmm. in childhood. Exactly. So what are some of the typical anxiety patient types that you see in primary care? So when we're looking at anxiety in childhood, we're kind of looking at the big three. So separation anxiety, social anxiety, and generalized anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, separation anxiety tends to be the one that you could pick up the earliest mm -hmm. because it happens, you know, there's this normal period of development between 12 and 18 months old mm -hmm. when kids are supposed to be afraid of separating from their caregiver, but that's actually a normative part of development. Mm -hmm. But after 18 months old, if they're still having a lot of trouble separating because they're afraid something's gonna happen to them or something's gonna happen to their parents while they're out of their sight, mm -hmm. then you start to see that that is problematic and interferes with their daily functioning. Mm -hmm. So that's one that we tend to pick up the earliest is the separation fears. Um, when it comes to specific phobias or social phobias, um, the social pressure doesn't usually start until around school age, and so you may, you may see shy kids, mm -hmm. and parents will often say, I think there's something wrong with my kid because they won't interact in the playground, but if they haven't really been exposed to a school setting yet, they haven't felt that pressure, then that just feels abnormal. Mm -hmm. But when they start to get into school age, if you're noticing that they're really struggling with fears of persecution, what kids are going to think about them, if they're going to make mistakes, and that worry turns into another worry and another worry, then we know we might be on the path of, of maybe more separation or mm -hmm. social phobia. Um, and then generalized anxiety disorder, those are just our worrying kids, the kids that worry about absolutely everything mm -hmm. and what might happen in the future, what might happen in the past, how they might be judged or perceived by others, afraid of getting sick, afraid of germs. You know, these kids are just tend to be the worriers and they mm -hmm. talk about it all the time. 
And that doesn't usually start until middle childhood or a little bit later. And so what you look for in primary care might change over the course of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the key things to look at is sort of what is a parent or a child kind of expressing that might be around fears and worries. And I use that term fears and worries more than anxiety. I find mm-hmm. that that helps better to right. understand what's going on. Destigmatizing. Um, destigmatizing, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then from um, that, seeing if it's interfering with their daily function, it can. Do they just have trouble separating in the morning or once they get to school, they're okay? It's just mm-hmm. that initial right. part that's really tough. Or, you know, can they present in front of a class? It's just the initial symptoms becomes overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So learning how much sort of on the spectrum mm-hmm. the interference is playing as a part of their daily life. So before a patient even gets to you, what can we as primary care providers do to help some of our patients who are reporting anxiety symptoms to us in clinic? That's a great question. I normally ask families when I meet with them before we even know if anxiety is a part of the picture, mm-hmm. is whether or not they consider themselves to be a worrier or their parents consider their child to be a worrier. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone that worries about things that maybe they don't feel like they have to or worries about things that might be out of proportion for something that we would consider to be developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, just what the family tells you. They might say, yeah, always afraid of turning off the stove or the fire alarm going off. And then mm-hmm. it allows you to probe a little bit deeper to understand, well, did you have a fire in your house or a break-in? Mm-hmm. In which case, that fear might be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Excessive, but might be appropriate. Or is it something like we check the alarm every night, the door is locked, and our kid is still having a lot of trouble not letting go of the fact that they might be in danger? Mm-hmm. And sort of to assess a little bit of the root cause of what it's stemming from, if there's an actual event, or if this is something that is a general fear and worry. Right. Also, the somatic symptoms are really helpful to look at. So. Um, we are, humans are somaticizers. We, in some ways, feel a lot of the pain that's going on in our body. So if you're hearing about headaches and stomach aches and mm-hmm. butterflies in the stomach and sweaty palms and faces getting warm and flushed when they have to speak, those are also signs of anxiety that are worth taking note of. Mm-hmm. I like that, um, getting to the root cause idea, because a lot of what we do is also screening for things like food insecurity or domestic violence, bullying, things that could be contributing to the child's anxiety that we wouldn't know unless we probed a little bit. Um, And it's important for us to find out those things before they get to you because then we can get started on trying to address those safety concerns too. Right, exactly. I do think that, you know, anxiety is one of the leading cause of seeking mental health treatment in childhood and beyond. It's sort of the second leading uh, mental health disorder that gets diagnosed in adulthood. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that we're not necessarily picking up the anxious symptoms at an at-risk level that well in the settings that present it most, like primary care and in schools, which Mm -hmm. would be the places where we could actually see anxiety both serving a purpose and also being problematic before it gets to the point where it's only problematic and no longer Mm -hmm. helping some sort of function. Right. So sometimes parents tell us that they think the anxiety their child is facing is just a phase. So perhaps it it seems related to a particular stressor, like maybe they're just anxious because they were recently being bullied or they recently had an exam or they're preparing for college. Those are some common things that I hear. So when is it just a phase and when is it something that we need to worry more about? Another excellent question and not one that's easy to understand. So because we're all inclined to feel anxious, any Mm -hmm. situation that is new or stressful Um, time transitions, changes in general, can produce an anxious response. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is understanding sort of is this response 
way out of proportion for what would be expected to be normal. Mm -hmm. So if you have a kid that is already maybe a little bit shy, doesn't necessarily make friends that easy, and then we move houses and switch school in the middle of the year, we would expect that transition to be tough. And mm -hmm. so having anxious symptoms around that transition and meeting new friends and going to a new building and knowing your classes and are kids gonna like you, those things I would consider to be normal. And so learning how to talk to families and parents talking to kids about those fears to make them seem relevant and um, more appropriate fears mm -hmm. is helpful. Mm -hmm. Versus the kids that are just that continue worried about things even though you've already addressed them um, and they seem to still linger and linger and linger and cause problems. Mm -hmm. And there's no harm in referring a patient um, for anxiety that is just a normal transition um, Absolutely. as well, right? So we could refer even if we think, mm -hmm. oh, once they get through this period, they'll be fine. Right. So the goal of having behavioral health providers like myself in primary care mm -hmm. is really to work with that at-risk population before they need outpatient services. So there are going to be plenty of people that need a full course of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most evidence-based form of treatment for anxiety, mm -hmm. um, that are going to need that week-to-week se -week session to really work on some of these phobias or generalized fear. But for the kids that are lower on the spectrum of anxiety, there's mm -hmm. a lot that we can do to maybe mitigate those symptoms and learn how to function better within the school setting and the family setting before they need outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's never there's no little amount of anxiety that would be too little to refer. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what are some of the other kind of evidence-based treatments for children with anxiety? That's the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And I often tell um, that that is the type of therapy that has the most support behind it for most anxiety presentations. Mm -hmm. There's other highly specific forms of CBT that we'll get at different aspects within the spectrum of anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. um, but CBT tends to be um, the de facto form of treatment for anxiety disorders. Tell us more about the Healthy Minds Healthy Kids program and the benefits of integrated care. So the Healthy Minds Healthy Kids program is an integrated behavioral health program embedded into primary care. It's been in existence for, we're starting our third year now, although having behavioral health providers in primary care at CHOP has been going on for many, many years. The goal is to not only provide some level of treatment in primary care, but providing appropriate treatment for the primary care setting. So helping pediatricians, helping our colleagues identify when behavioral health problems arise and how to best treat them. Some might be with simple therapy that we can do here in office. Some might be referring out to specialty providers for a specific type of therapy. Mm -hmm. Some might be just engagement and motivational strategies around behavioral health care and stigma and access and things like that. So the goal for us in primary care is really to bring the need of behavioral and mental health into the setting where we know families and people are. If they go anywhere, they go to their pediatrician for mm -hmm. care. Um, they might never make it to a specialty office. And so we are trying to be here to meet the need at varying levels from the kids that might be a little bit at risk. And it's appropriate to say, hey, why don't you talk to a behavioral health provider about this small anxiety issue, but it seems like it's impairing versus the kids that need a lot more care and they just don't know where to get it from or don't mm -hmm. have the time to wait months on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. And so our goal is almost to help triage into our profession where the family needs to enter mm -hmm. um, care. Great. For 
practices that don't have integrated care, um, maybe out in our care network or out in the community, how can they help their patients access behavioral health services? So we do recognize that there's a big gap there and there is an effort to get behavioral health providers into all of the care networks. And it's gonna take time to roll out to the 31 practices, but currently we are practicing in six and there are plans for expansion each year. Mm -hmm. um, the hospital deems this as important. Our department deems this as important. So we will get there eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are in a practice and you don't have access to a behavioral health provider, um, which doesn't have to be a licensed psychologist like myself, we have social work, uh, clinical social workers and lots of practices. There are psychiatrists practicing. There are master's level professionals. So there's lots of ways of getting access to behavioral health providers that can provide care mm -hmm. would be to you know, work with the local systems there to see what therapy exists. You know, we often, sometimes I'll sit with a parent and I'll pull out the insurance card on the back and show them where the mental health number is mm -hmm. to say that this is the number you need to call to see where you can get care if um, you want insurance to pay for it. If that's not an issue, there's other ways to do that as well. Mm -hmm. And then to actually sort of write out the specific type of labels around the care that they need. So if a family comes to see me for anxiety or for trauma, I'll say, you know, I might not be the best provider in primary care to see you, but I want you to call this number on the back of your insurance company and get trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And so it gives parents a little bit more of an edge to advocate for something for their child rather than just calling a number and saying, I need psychology mm -hmm. services or I need behavioral health services. Mm -hmm. Great. Those are good tips. Any Before we close, any um, coping strategies that you give kids that we can pass along when we're seeing kids in clinic with anxiety, things like, I'm thinking like meditation or breathing exercises, mm -hmm. what kind of little tricks can we, can we use? So my two favorite tricks that I'll do that I think anyone could do um, in primary care or beyond, because I think they're really easy to do, is one, just getting a connection of body clues. So mm -hmm. knowing when our body tells us that we're feeling anxious. Is it that our head feels hot? We have butterflies in our stomach. Our heart starts to race, our hands get sweaty. So just noticing what the somatic symptoms are mm -hmm. and to say, that's you being a detective for your own body to know we're starting to feel anxious. Mm -hmm. So first recognizing those clues and then using techniques to calm down. Um, so deep breathing mm -hmm. is a technique that we use a lot here in primary care and in practice in general. So getting kids to take some nice deep belly breaths, mm -hmm. sometimes even using guided imagery. Like one I use often is having kids pretend like they're holding a flower. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask them what color their flower is just to get a little visualization around it. And then the activity would be for them to take a deep breath to the count of five, inhaling all the beautiful smells of that flower, mm -hmm. and then blowing off all the petals slowly one by one. And so actually visualizing blowing off you know, some petals on the flower. Mm -hmm and doing that three to four times. And then encouraging mom or dad in the room or a caregiver to also participate. So mm -hmm. they see if mom and dad do it, then it's less of a funny thing for me to do, but everyone's doing it. Right. And encouraging practice time. So to do it in the morning, to do it before bed, to do it in the shower, mm -hmm. but to practice multiple times a day because it's really hard to use those skills on your own when you're already stressed out and mm -hmm. anxious. So the best way to be able to do those is to practice them when we're feeling calm. Mm -hmm. And so to make it more of a family approach to, you know, starting to use some of these coping strategies until we can then get into the, mm -hmm. the meat of the therapy, which would need the help of a professional at that right. point. Great. Well, thank you. I'm feeling calmer already. So. <laughs> okay, <Thanks>. I'm glad. <laughs> Thanks for...
talking to us about anxiety, the ways that we can access behavioral health care, and the integrated primary care program at CHOP. We're so happy to have you at CHOP South Philly, and we appreciate all of your colleagues out there in the care network and the way that you continue to grow. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.